I want to invite you to think with me about uh, the birth of our Savior from the biblical record. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at Matthew's account. Uh, as you know, the uh, three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each have their own details about uh, the incarnation, the birth of Christ. Um, most people think of Luke's account, but I want us to look at Matthew's uh, account and just draw some uh, principles from that uh, this evening. You know, there's something very special about holding a newborn baby. As I mentioned, we've had six, we have six precious children, and we're so thankful for that. It's a gift from the Lord, but I was there after each of them were born, held them moments after they were born. And, you know, as a parent, your mind is filled with questions in that moment. And you might think, you know, what will he be like as he grows up? Or what will her personality be? Or what career will she choose? What gifts and talents will he have? Will she be healthy? Wise? Will he or she make a difference in the world? And, you know, your unspoken answers to these questions and others as you're holding this precious newborn really constitute your expectations. And having raised uh, six children, I'm convinced that all babies really should come with a warning uh, that says something like this, expect the unexpected, <laughs> because life is a journey, and it's a series of ups and downs, and nothing can really adequately prepare parents for the adventure that is raising children. And as we think about that first Christmas morning, I wonder what Mary and Joseph thought as they held baby Jesus for the first time. Now, they had a distinct advantage because they had been told uh, that by an angel that Jesus would be the Savior of the world, that Mary was carrying the Christ child, that this was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, for example. But still, there's no way they could have expected all that Jesus would do and say and become during his life and earthly ministry. This little baby that they held in their arms was the ultimate paradox. Now, a paradox is an interesting concept. You know, we've been talking a lot here at Plum Creek in our Wednesday night study about uh, what we call antinomies, which are biblical truths that, while true, seem contrary to logic. They're hard to understand. Um, and a paradox is similar to that. It's basically a statement that at face value contradicts itself or a situation that might seem to defy logic. A paradox occurs when reality runs contrary to your expectations. There's lots of fun paradoxes. I thought about kind of getting into a couple of these just by way of explanation, but I think I'm going to for the sake of time, not do that. But I do want to mention them and encourage you, check these out. They're a lot of fun to just kind of play with. For example, Zeno, the 5th century B.C. Greek philosopher, so 500 years before Christ, uh, presented the Fletcher's paradox with the bow and arrow. Very fascinating. There's the famous Hangman's uh, paradox. Uh, Monty Hall's paradox. I still haven't quite figured that one out. And then, of course, if you follow much about dimensional stuff and time travel and all that, there's the famous grandfather paradox, right? 
so that'll just whet your appetite a bit. You can kind of uh, chew on that uh, later on your own time. But did you know the Bible is filled with its own paradoxes? Definitely. For example, death brings life. You have to die to live. Uh, the Bible talks about in Ephesians, knowing the love that cannot be known. Well, that's a paradox. How can you know something that cannot be known? Or Paul talks about how we become wise by becoming fools. Those are paradoxes. As believers, we live the Christian life by dying to ourselves, putting to death the old man daily as we walk by faith and not by sight. In Matthew chapter 1, we see the picture of the consummate paradox in the birth of baby Jesus, the Christ child. And as we look at these eight verses together, I want to point out four paradoxes for you to think about as you think about the Christmas story, maybe in a way that you haven't really thought about before. The first paradox is this, baby Jesus was earthly yet heavenly. Baby Jesus was earthly yet heavenly. He was right there in the flesh, physically being held in Mary's arms, physically lying in a manger like the replica we have out here. I don't know if it was exactly like that, but that's a good reminder of the fact that, you know, there was no room in the guest house where they had traveled for this census. It was filled up with relatives. And so the best they could do was say, take him back out to the stable. And, uh, but that manger out there in the lobby has a baby in it. And in, in, the, in history, at a moment in time, a real flesh and blood baby occupied a manger. A real earthly baby was held in Mary's arms. And I'm sure at that moment, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, who heard him cry, probably touched him, uh, I'm sure nobody really knew where the story would go in its fullest. No one expected that there was much, much more to the story. Even if they were great students of the prophets, even if they were focused intently on the promise of uh, the angel of the Lord, uh, still, in that moment, the earthly Jesus occupied their thoughts. Let's see what Matthew, uh, how he describes it, verses 18 and 19. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Remember, um, we've talked about this before, but the betrothal period was a one-year period, somewhat similar to our engagement period, but in the Jewish culture. Uh, you were considered married during the betrothal period, but you didn't consummate the marriage till after the one-year period. A period. That's why Matthew refers here to before they came together. And she was found to be with child. How can that be? They hadn't consummated. Well, she was conceived, baby Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. We talked about that recently, too. Uh, you know, in the Jewish culture, if the, the betrothed woman was found to be with child, there were two or three options, one of which was public shaming and even stoning, although they didn't do that much by the first century. Um, that hadn't happened for a while, but it was part of the law. Uh, but Joseph instead 
was going to just kind of put her away quietly and secretly to cause the least amount of shame for her. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There you have it. That baby Jesus, in all of his tangible, physical, flesh and blood qualities, was in fact simultaneously heavenly. There was something different about him. He was not just earthly. He was heavenly. Paul would later describe the contrast this way. The first man of the earth made of, was of the earth made of dust, talking about Adam. But the second man, the second Adam, is the Lord of heaven, of there in Greek meaning from. In fact, that's the way the New King James translates it. From heaven. Uh, in John chapter 3, we read, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. Wait, I thought he was born of Mary's womb. No, the Bible tells us he came down from heaven because he is the Son of Man who is in heaven. That's a paradox. He was earthly, yet heavenly. When we think of that first Christmas morning, we think of a humble manger, a precious baby, the Christ child, all of those things, and that's true. But do we stop to consider that heaven came down and glory filled the earth that day? It doesn't look like glory the way we see it represented in the Old Testament with the Shekinah glory and all of the power and might of Almighty God. Oh, to be sure, there were plenty of glorious things accompanying the birth of the Savior, the angels to the shepherds, the star to the magi. But do we see the inexplicable intersection of the earthly and the heavenly, of the temporal and the eternal? Baby Jesus was earthly yet heavenly. So as you think about Christmas tonight and as we go home in a little bit and maybe gather with family and celebrate, some people celebrate on Christmas Eve or tomorrow, whenever it is, as you think about that precious baby, let me ask you, do you need a glimpse of heaven tonight? Take a closer look at the manger. Recognize that in this precious Christ child, we see the unmerited grace of God. We see the almighty creator of the universe taking the first step to redeem us from our hopeless, self-inflicted predicament. You see, God did not have to rescue us from our predicament. We got ourselves into this predicament against his warnings. God said, don't eat from that tree. In the, eight, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. We marched right over, took a great big bite. God in his justice and holiness and righteousness could have ended it all right there. But in his mercy and grace and love, he took the extraordinary step of rescuing us from our own sinfulness. And the only way he could do that was to have some human being that had room on his shoulders to take upon him the sin of the world. Someone who could be wounded for our transgressions. Someone who could pay the penalty for everyone's sin in the entire world. And so, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. God is spirit. 
You had to be a man, had to be a human being to take on the sins of the world. That's the punishment. So God had Jesus Christ put on human flesh, come to earth, born as a human being, earthly, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he's without sin, live a perfect, holy, sinless life, and then ultimately make his way up to Calvary where he was the sinless, perfect man who then could take your sin and your sin and my sin and pay for it, which he did when he died. And then defeating death, hell, and the grave three days later, he now offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. When you think about this little earthly baby, think about heaven and all that God went through to redeem us from our own predicament. I think a second paradox, though, is that in baby Jesus, we see someone who was young, yet old. Young, yet old. I mean, imagine what it must have been like to see precious baby Jesus in the manger. I mean, that soft skin, tiny body, eyes closed. Mary picks him up safe in his mother's arms. No one expected there would be more to the story. But the angel said, as we're going to see in just a second, that this precious baby was to be Emmanuel. Well, what does that mean? God with us. See, this baby, seconds old, was nevertheless eternal. Listen to what Matthew says. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then under the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew translates that, meaning God with us. One word in Hebrew, but God with us. How can Jesus be young and yet old? And not just old, but eternal. That which is without beginning and without end. Well, that's the essence of the incarnation. There's a lot of bad theology out there that some of it just innocent from people that really haven't studied it and other uh, people that should know better that suggests that Jesus became the Son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. Not true. The Bible is very clear. You go to passages like Psalm 110 that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. All that changed was that he became fully human in addition to his full deity with that hypostatic union when he was born of a virgin. See, time is transitional. Time is temporary. One day, time will be no more. When, when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation and after the thousand-year millennium, he makes all things new, including this old earth that is under the curse of sin. But in baby Jesus, we see a Savior who is young yet old. Jesus himself said at the very end of the Bible, I am the Alpha and Omega. I think everybody knows that's the first and last letters of the, of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. So let me ask you, as you celebrate the birth of our Savior tonight, do you need a, a sense of eternity? Do you need to be reminded as you look in the manger that there's more to life than what you can see and hear and touch? There's an eternal aspect to what we're celebrating tonight and tomorrow. See, Christmas 
has become, after 2,000 years, uh, for many, focused merely on the now. You know, family come into town, can't wait to see kid, the kids or the grandparents or the grandkids, whatever it is. Can't wait to give them a hug. It's focused on the presence. Where do I get so-and-so now? I wonder what so-and-so got me now. It's focused on gatherings like this one that happen at a moment in time. It's focused on services and candles. When we light these candles, be careful not to burn yourself, by the way. Uh, we're, we're going to do that in a moment in time. But when's the last time at Christmas you stopped to contemplate the fact that baby Jesus is young yet old? And I don't mean 2,000 years in terms of a time span since he was born, but I mean eternal. There's a third paradox, and that is in baby Jesus we see a baby that was humble and yet glorious. Humble and yet glorious. I think this is one of the most glaring paradoxes of Christmas. The brightness of God's glory in Christ being shrouded in humility. See, Joseph and Mary were relegated to the stable because the guest room was already filled with out-of-town guests. I mean, can you imagine the king of kings in a manger? I mean, I can. we, we could sit here probably... For an extended period of time and make a list of I'm going to guess hundreds of people live alive right now on the earth that if they unexpectedly walked through that back door we would all gasp and you know be flustered and scramble to make room for them and to roll out the red carpet and to say please come sit right here because of their office or because of their stature or because of maybe they're a hero of some kind and yet here's none, none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what a humble beginning and what a contrast. No one expected that there would be more to the story. Matthew says, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him, uh, uh, commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. Now, Luke's account, because Luke, the gospel writer, focuses more on the humanity of Christ to a Gentile audience, whereas Matthew is focusing his gospel to a, to a Jewish audience, and so he doesn't, he doesn't give a lot of detail. But if you cross-reference into Luke's account, we get more details than simply brought her, forth her firstborn son. Luke tells us she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So the contrast is between the, the royal birthplace that this king of kings, the son of David, the Messiah, long awaited, deserved, versus the humble one that he received. And I can't help but think that Christ's exclusion from the house, the guest room, remember in is not like a hotel or a motel like we might think of it. It's actually used elsewhere just to refer to a guest room. And we see that actually in Scripture. But he was excluded from the, the main house, I think, as an anticipation of his rejection, ultimately, by society at large. And the rejection that he would you know, have throughout his ministry, ultimately, 
leading to the cross. You know, the prophets wrote about a king of glory, a king of heaven. One of the prophets talked about the desire of all nations when referring to the Messiah. And yet, they also wrote that he would have no beauty that men would desire him. He would be a suffering servant who bled and died. The prophets talked about how he would come in flaming fire to take vengeance on his enemies. And he will, most definitely. But yet he's also the Prince of Peace who comes preaching peace, the gospel of peace, Isaiah 61. So the, the prophecies of Christ in and of themselves are really a great paradox, aren't they? The unexpected birth of Christ really is a picture of life in general. Life is a, a series of humbling episodes separated by periods of momentary glory. And, you know, the, the, the cross always has to come before the crown. So this one's a little bit harder, perhaps, to contemplate because you just have to picture in your mind's eye the, the, the Lamb of God coming back as the victorious warrior in, in Revelation 19 with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. You don't get that picture when you look at manger scenes like the one in our lobby. But do you need a touch of glory tonight? The first century world saw the glory of God burst onto the scene in a very dark time. There was a heaviness that covered the land of Israel. Remember, it had been 2,000 years since Abraham was given the unconditional promise that a seed from his lineage would ultimately rule the world. It had been 1,000 years since King David was promised that Someone from his line would indeed be the long-awaited Messiah. It had been centuries since each of the succeeding prophets reminded the people of Israel of the coming of Messiah. Indeed, it had been 400 years since any prophet spoke anything. You have to wonder, had they given up hope? Generations had come and gone, and maybe the first century generation had begun to believe somehow that maybe they they missed it. Maybe they misunderstood. Maybe the glory of God is not going to return to the temple. Maybe Christ is not going to rule the world in perfect peace and justice. The Christ. It was a time of Jewish political corruption running rampant as the Jewish leaders were in cahoots with the Roman leaders. The Messianic hope had been long forgotten. And yet there it was, right there in that manger. Doesn't seem very glorious, does it? He was humble, yet glorious. You know, here we are, another 2,000 years removed from the coming of Christ, the first advent, and these are dark times too. Um, and we need to remember to look beyond our circumstances humble though they may be, and expect the unexpected. I see, by the way, a parallel between the unexpected birth of Christ, humble yet glorious, and the return of Christ to take the throne. First at the rapture when we meet Him in the air, in the twinkling of an eye, but someday in all of His glory. 
Jesus describes it that way in Matthew 24 and 25. Are you ready? Do you need that touch of glory? Uh, it's coming. And then the fourth and final paradox is really fascinating to me. Jesus, baby Jesus, was speechless yet shouting. Speechless yet shouting. See, infants cannot speak. A new mom quickly learns how to, uh, re how to read a baby's cries, right? Is he hungry? Does her diaper need changing? Is he sick? Something wrong with her? They can tell by the cries because newborn babies can't speak. I mean, think about that. The very one who, who created us, remember Colossians says that it's by Christ, the eternal Son of God, that all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1, 16 to 17. So the very one who, who created our vocal cords and our tongues and our lips so that we can speech, so we can speak, was powerless to speak even a, a single syllable as a baby. No one expected that there would be more to the story, though. And what we find, though, is that this speech, this baby, was really shouting God's grace from the manger. Remember what we read a moment ago. Matthew said he called his name Jesus. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. God saves. So this little baby, speechless though he may be, came to save the world. Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But you know, baby Jesus didn't stay speechless for long. We don't have a whole lot of biblical record of his life growing up. But we, we have four gospels that describe his three and a half year ministry. Uh, in fact, we know that his words actually confounded the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees who they said, who, who said of him, no man ever spoke like this. And then, of course, from the cross, his voice was heard loud and clear when he cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took the sins of the world upon his shoulders. Your sin and my sin. One day all believers will hear his voice. As he calls us to meet him in the air at the rapture. The Bible says the Lord himself will descend with what? A shout. A shout. See he might have been speechless as a baby. But he didn't stay speechless for long. In fact ultimately when he returns to rule and reign in the kingdom. The Bible tells us even the dead will hear his voice. Do not marvel at this, Jesus said, for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Can you hear him tonight? You know, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He was speechless yet shouting. And do you need to hear his voice tonight? When's the last time you remember Hearing that still, small voice of the Savior speaking to your heart. Look at the manger, but look for what's not there. He was earthly indeed. He had human flesh and he was a human baby. But do you see the heavenly? He was 
certainly humble, uh, certainly young, seconds old, and yet here was the eternal Son of God. He was certainly humble, yet through the midst of all of the, you know, the stable and the animals and the less than ideal circumstances that greeted him, can you see his glory? And even though he was speechless, can you hear his voice? So here's my takeaway for tonight. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and we're going to close out by singing Silent Night. I want you to think about these paradoxes. It's easy to think about the ones on the left. But this Christmas, for the next 24 hours or so, as you think about the birth of Christ, you know, you hear the songs. We've listened to a ton of Christmas carols all the way on our drive yesterday and today. Uh, look past the obvious and see the subtle. And as you worship God tonight, worship the God of the unexpected. See, there's more to the story. And that pattern repeats itself again and again and again. We see that from Genesis to Revelation throughout the, 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 the grand meta-narrative of Scripture. There's always more to the story. God is the God of the unexpected. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for... Uh, just this uh, simple reminder as we look a little bit deeper beyond uh, just the obvious and see the theological implications of the birth of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, tonight I pray if there's anyone uh, within the sound of my voice that is here providentially, maybe visiting family, it was what the family was doing tonight, and maybe they don't know you. They've never placed their faith in the one who took their penalty for sin, that paid it completely on the cross rose again and now offers freely that gift of forgiveness and eternal life. If there's someone who has never trusted Jesus for eternal life, I pray that today, tonight, they would, in simple childlike faith, trust in the only one who can save them. And for those of us who have already trusted in Christ, I pray that we would be reminded of all that is wrapped up in the birth narrative and see it beyond just what is physical and present but see what you are doing in the midst of, of this incredible moment when heaven touched earth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.